Welcome to Prospecting Purpose, where we explore mining's role in shaping a sustainable, socially just, and brighter future. I'm Liz Friel, your host for the series, with a rotating guest on every episode. Have you noticed the ways in industry, we talk about the life of mine as this distinct thing that lives in its own world, apart from the system around it, a world that ends upon closure? Do you struggle with how blindly we still focus on ceasing our activity versus transitioning the land we've been doing those activities on? or the people who remain long after those activities have ceased? Have you wondered how those transitions could be done better so that the site, the company, and the industry leaves a positive, lasting legacy with the public? Joining us on the show today, we have Peter Whitbread Abertat, CEO of social enterprise consultancy Teacher Terrains, based in England. A seasoned mining closure and environmental specialist with over 30 years of global closure-related experience, Pete is truly passionate about rebuilding ecological integrity and enhancing community well-being in post-mining areas. He was also one of the masterminds behind a very unique book called 101 Things to Do with a Hole in the Ground. Welcome, Pete. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to have you. So you've been working in this area of closure for about three decades now, and you've surely seen a lot and learned a lot during that time. Before we start, how did you get into mine closure? Well, I've always been interested in environmental issues, and I went to university and studied ecology. I wanted to do carry on and go into research So I wanted to use that opportunity to actually try and fix some environmental issue that needed fixing. So applied research rather than just do PhD research just for the sake of it. So I ended up at Camon School of Mines doing a PhD in trying to prove tree establishment on old mine sites in Cornwall in England. And Cornwall's got a very rich and very long history of metal mining in particular. So there's plenty of uh, old mines out there to learn about mining and to learn about the environmental and social issues associated with that. So that kind of grabbed me. And it's a really good case study of how sustainable mine closure should happen because a lot of the impacts of it not happening are extant in Cornwall today. So this closure thing wasn't always a topic of conversation, right? I think we only saw the word closure really popularized in the mid-1970s. What have you seen happen with the evolution of closure during your time in the field? Well, I was only a very, very young boy in the 1970s, of course. But I was, I was aware of, um, it was in the late 60s and the 1970s in particular, a growing, certainly in Western developed economies, a growing public awareness of environmental issues, mainly to do around acid rain and things like water pollution and air pollution. And then on the back of that, there was a growing media presence on these issues as well. Things like David Attenborough's Life on Earth programme, which kind of inspired me to get involved. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that was a, a key turning point in to get me involved in environmental issues. And I'm not sure what they used to call mine closure in the 70s, probably called it mine closure. But what I've seen happening over that period is that what that phrase actually means has developed and evolved into something that's more than just closing the gates and walking away, which is what used to happen. And more of a, I would like to say, a more progressive, responsible attitude in some, some companies towards leaving behind a positive legacy when the mine closes environmentally and socioeconomically as well. It doesn't always happen, but that's what we'd like to see. And there's a growing awareness that that's what's required. I would say still there's some key major challenges to achieving that more broadly around the world. Some of the key challenges are around how to leave a viable post-mining communities, for example. A mine might have been central to a community's existence for generations and decades. And if that mine suddenly goes, suddenly there's a, a, a massive economic impact and a massive social impact and often a cultural impact as well. And 
too often that problem still hasn't been fixed by the broader mining industry. And when I talk about the mining industry, I don't just mean mining companies. I mean people like me, mining consultants. Uh, I mean governments and I mean uh, local community stakeholders and the rest. That problem still exists. And then there's other issues around things like major challenges around how to deal with abandoned mines, mines that no longer are owned by a company and have moved into the, by default, into the public sector ownership, still spewing out toxic water and, and causing social problems as well. Right. I mean, the industry has become so good at managing so many impacts, but overall, still not so much this one. If we don't clean up properly after ourselves and leave, as you say, a genuinely positive legacy with communities, it's understandable that communities or government might be reticent to grant new permits in the future to any mining company. And I think that the link between responsible life cycle management and the future of social license should be fairly obvious. Like when I look at the average post-closure story, it's genuinely concerning. There are so many defunct and declining mining towns and, as you mentioned, abandoned sites of environmental and social concern all over the world. Like I take the example uh, here in Canada, there's this database from the National Orphaned and Abandoned Mines Initiative. Never mind those that haven't been abandoned, but there are literally thousands in that inventory. Why do you think this subject is so different when we're so good at managing all these other impacts? Why do we lag on this? I think there's um, a long-standing cultural, a mining cultural thing. It's, it's difficult to explain why we're so bad at mine closure when we're getting much better at everything else. But there is something about and I think it's part of the human condition as well we put much more effort and drive into in, in developing new things whether it's a mine or a house or or a new business or whatever it is and we want to get that operating as quickly as possibly and as successfully as possibly but we don't ever think and I'm guilty as anybody else I don't ever think about what happens at the end of my business or the end of when I leave my house or whatever how do we close that down and, and, and I think that's part of the human mindset and the rewards in particular around towards mining companies and the mining industry per se um, are realised by those who are the quickest at setting up a mine and most efficient at operating it. Uh, and all the investment that goes into that, most of the investment priorities are around how quickly those investments are repaid and, by, and how much profits they can make. If somehow that was tied towards leaving a positive legacy when the mine's closed, however you do that through incentivization or regulation or whatever it is, I think the mine closure process on the whole would be a lot better than it is. That's not to say that there aren't a lot of companies out there uh, doing a good job, but there's an awful lot that are still doing the bare minimum or worse. A lot of the time that's simply because they can get away with it because the regulatory system in that jurisdiction is either insufficient, insufficient regulation, or there's not sufficient capacity back in the regulator to make sure the mines follow the regulation, or there isn't the will in government for various reasons, whether that's corruption or whatever it is, to ensure that their own regulations are applied. So there's a number of issues tied into that. I always say that the key, where when a mine closes, is kind of the nexus point for determining how well a mine has managed its environmental and social performance throughout the life of the mine. And the more, the higher the performance level during the construction and operational phases, the fewer risks and therefore costs are associated with environmental and social performance at closure because you should know most of the risks at that stage. Uh, you should have planned how much they're going to cost and roughly how you're going to fix them. So by the time you get to closure, it's a relatively straightforward exercise. You know what you're going to do. And then hopefully you've done some post-closure planning with other stakeholders to see how that land's going to be managed going forward, who's going to take responsibility for it, etc., etc. That's what's supposed to happen. 
And so what's important to celebrate about the mining industry's progress in this area? Because it's obviously not all doom and gloom. Well, certainly during the 25 or 30 years I've been involved in the mining sector, there have been significant improvements in mine closure as an issue taken forward by government and mining companies. So in most jurisdictions around the world now, if not all of them, there is a requirement to produce a mining a mine closure plan, for example. Now, sometimes that's just a formulaic thing uh, and a, often a meaningless bit of paper, but at least that's something on the co- should be on a company's radar screen now. There's also a lot of uh, legislation, regulation in most jurisdictions around setting aside finance, sometimes quite a lot of finance, during the operational phase of the mine as a closure bond to pay for mine closure. That's something that's happened in the last 20 or 30 years in a m- much more broadly. So that's good as well. And I think there's a much greater understanding of by the industry of environmental and social issues associated with mining and mine closure. That doesn't always mean that they know how to, as a broader industry in society, we know how to fix those issues, but at least we understand them better. And I guess we're on a, as, as we always are in everything, we're on a, an ongoing escalator through um, human existence, aren't we? <laughs> and we're always learning new stuff. There's always new problems that arise. And we're always, at, one thing we can do is adapt very, very well as humans and, and fix these things in the future. And that there's a lot of very, very bright people associated with the mining industry. So I, I think a lot of these problems are probably fixable once we know how to fix them. Uh, once we've learned out better knowledge and worked out how to work together better with other stakeholders and experts, etc. And learning from other, other industries, not so much just the mining industry, uh, but other industries as well. What's some good so, that we've seen? Yeah, so one thing that is very good recently is like a plethora out there of really good mine closure guidance produced by industry leaders like ICMM. And that's only been out a couple of years. So once that starts to embed in responsible mining companies' systems, that kind of stuff should really make a difference, I hope. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But for the moment, we're really stuck in this starting and ending with the hole in the ground. We still aren't good at seeing. I like thinking about a book. Um, We still aren't very good at seeing the life of mine as a chapter in a book, The Life of Land. I mean, there was something there before this mine, and there will be something there long after. But of course, it doesn't have to be this way. And so I want to chat to you a little bit about the best-selling book, 101 Things to Do with a Hole in the Ground, which you were very involved in. Because it sold thousands of copies all around the world. It was produced in four different languages. And it had all sorts of stories of post-mining possibilities from your own research. So tell me, what do the success stories have in common in your experience? Well, first of all, it was a very successful book for, for what it was, the kind of thing it's trying to do. Unfortunately, it's now sold out, though, so I feel a bit bad about promoting it and talking about it because you can't you can't actually access it unless you steal it off somebody <laughs> but uh one of the benefits of looking at a diverse range of projects across a number of different geographies and cultures and things is you can unpick generic common challenges and see how those were addressed under those different conditions and then come up with an idea for how in a general sense what needs to be done to make practice better and that applies not just to the mining industry it applies to everything there's a lot of lessons that the mining industry can learn from other kinds of, let's call them landscape restoration projects, you know, whether it's in agriculture or wetlands or uh, island ecological restoration projects, for example. So if you if you want to boil it down, there's a what I did was come up with four different generic areas with their attendant challenges, but also ways of addressing them. So the four general areas are, are, are how these projects are governed and managed, how we encourage meaningful participation 
project sustainability, i.e. how do we make a project not sustainable in the sustainable development sense, but how do you make the project sustainable after the mining company has gone or after the funding's run out to set the project up? Then there's a bunch of cross-cutting issues, which I call the oil in the machine, which cut across all these different areas, which are things like acquiring the knowledge, applying the knowledge, good communication, collaboration, proper leadership, emphasising creativity and beauty. Uh, and impo- really, really importantly, when it comes to mining, a lot of people cry, d- describe mining as a, a cultural activity as well. So there's a whole bunch of things in there that you can break down into separate strands and then see how those have been addressed in different situations with real examples associated with them. And what about those success stories do you think would most surprise the mining industry? Well, there's a bunch of examples out there, um, and a lot of them are in the, that book, 101 Things to Do with a Hole in the Ground. A good example would be the Eden Project, which is a transformational botanical garden and visit attraction built in an old China clay quarry in the middle of Cornwall. I was involved in that project um, for 12 years. It opened 20 years ago, and in that time, it's generated well over a billion pounds of extra added value to the local economy, which is far more than the mine ever added to the economy in 160 years of operations. That project didn't come out of a mining company. That was, uh, even though the, the the hull was still being mined when Eden bought the project, it was en- the hull was destined to become a landfill site. That was a level of ambition. So the Eden project was visualised and developed by people who weren't who weren't mining industry people, who weren't mining companies. It was a bunch of creative people, uh, architects, artists, uh, civil engineers, horticulturists, all working together. Most of them were local already, uh, who managed to come together around this idea for doing something really unique and different and important. And that's what's happened. And it's a grand-scale, high-profile project, but there's many hundreds of other projects around the world that follow a similar pattern of development on old mine sites where local people have come together to try and fix a problem that's on their doorstep that might even know, not describe what they're doing as a mine closure project or a post-mining regeneration project. They just see an opportunity around a derelict piece of land to do something different that adds value to their existence, their, their society. So even as much as um, setting up a mountain biking track across an old mine site, there's many examples of that in Cornwall, for example, where a bunch of people who've got a similar interest form an informal group and then just create a mountain biking track, uh, dog walking, using it as recreation, that kind of thing. And then there's a, in other cases, there's some, um, for example, if you look at the uh, old lignite mining fields of eastern Germany, which were once state-owned during the communist era and obviously when the Soviet system declined and Germany became completely democratic, they had this legacy of massive, massive old lignite mines that were very polluting, etc., that was a government-mandated programme, costing billions of euros over many, many years to restore that entire landscape, covering tens of thousands of hectares of eastern Germany into new land uses, stable ground, new tourism attractions, musical venues, water sports. Loads of examples of really good projects that have happened on old mine sites that have not been developed by mines. So that underlines the point that the more you can incorporate other stakeholders outside the mining industry or outside the mining company into your thinking around how you're going to close that mine, the more value you could get out of it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm really hopeful when I hear stories like those. 
in the past decade or so, we've seen these new terms come around that sort of re reflect these kinds of stories, like progressive and integrated to describe closure, um, a term into itself, social closure. Uh, we're seeing inclusive and asset-based community development approaches be pulled in. Uh, more recently, we saw the emergence of transition, particularly social transition. And that really excites me as a practitioner. Um, the ICMM guidelines, for example, have some great best practice detail. And, and all this certainly reflects the evolution of thinking in the field. I'm curious how you think leadership thinking and objectives have changed lately, in, in your opinion, along, alongside those changes that we're seeing in the field and in the public. So the, when we talk about social transition as opposed to social closure, the thinking behind that, I think, uh, and that's come out into the new ICMM guidance on integrated mind closure. They talk about social transition, and that recognises the fact that call something social closure sounds a little bit terminal in more ways than one. It does better describe what actually happens on the ground when the mind stops operating. Society is still there, but it's transiting, transiting from a, a mining society to a post-mining society, so there's a process of transition going on. But what I've, I've been saying for years, the whole term mine closure could also be called mining transition for exactly those reasons. Uh, it's not just the local community and society that changes gradually in tran of transitions between the two states. The environment does as well, and it continues to develop. So the whole thing should be called mining transition. And it, the way I like to think about it is if you think of the, forget about the mine itself, but think about the landscape where that mine sits. That mine might only be there for a few years or a few decades. But the landscape might have been there for thousands of years, if not millions of years in some places. There's a story around that landscape, a narrative, a natural history story, and a social and cultural history story as well. And that mine occupies one small chapter in that whole narrative, okay? So what we need to do when we close a mine is not think about that as an end point, but think about that as setting up the scene for the start of the next chapter in that landscape narrative and the people associated with it. And if, if we could get miners, um, the mining industry, to think about that rather than seeing mining, mine closure as an end point, but see it as a, a new beginning and a transitional process, we might be able to better in, encourage them to take a longer term approach to life of mine, mine closure planning or planning for closure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I wanted to ask, in, like in a bit more detail, how you've seen the landscape change, like have you seen the landscape of closure, mind closure, change much over the years? Like while you've been working in this field? I mean, like when you spoke before, you talked about, you know, it's moving slowly and uh, it's still not taken seriously, and, but that there's hope in the best practice. Yeah, if we're trying to change uh, the practice of a whole industry across the world, it is a slow process. And a lot of it comes down to how um, mature systems of government are in terms of regulating and, and kind of requiring companies of all kinds not just mining companies to behave in a certain way and how well they implement those regulations and so to do it at a global level is a slow process and there'll always be laggards but mature democracies like in Europe and um, North America you know if companies properly start implementing the best practice guidance that's around and a lot of the big companies do have their own internal mine closure standards as well if those are properly implemented then I'm quite optimistic about the future um, there'll, there'll always be places where it's not implemented properly, uh, but, but we don't have to go that far back in history, just a couple of decades, where it wasn't implemented properly anywhere. We are moving forward, and there are increasingly, when we've seen all these uh, catastrophes with the collapse of mine 
tailings dams, for example, in, in recent years, there is a much greater interest now by investors, governments and other stakeholders in ensuring that mining companies are held to account for their environmental and social responsibilities. And that's been tied into investment decisions by big banks, for example, and other investment groups. But it's also tied into conditions around development banks from like um, the IFC or regional development banks like the African Development Bank or, or wherever, European ERBD, European, Reconst European Bank of Reconstruction. Reconstruction and Development. development. Yes. Yeah. Cool. yeah, and so we're seeing more and more ESG stuff being covenanted, right? Like the mines on the ground have to comply with different banks' requirements. And, and I think once upon a time, maybe that was only a requirement of the IFC, but like, are you seeing... Are you seeing other entities like well beyond the IFC do this kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. At the so <clears throat> commercial banks, uh, I can't remember how many. There's around a hundred now signed up to the Equator principles, um, and they mandate that mining companies have to follow best practice guidance uh, based on the performance standards and, and good international industry practice, which includes ICMM guidance as well. And that's mandated in the financial covenants that are made or legal covenants that are made between the commercial bank and the mining company for it, for that investment. And then that's audited as well. So people like me will go to those mine sites as independent auditors and environment and audit the environmental and social performance against those standards. And then we do have proper discussions about where the gaps are and how they're going to be filled uh, and by when. So, you know, it, it's, it's taken increasingly seriously. It's definitely hopeful. So despite our progress, I want to know what still frustrates you. Well, we know pretty well how to fix a lot of environmental problems, such as building stables, tailings, impoundments, for example, stabilising waste rock dumps, restoring vegetation of one type or another, treating water. It comes down to an issue of cost at the end of the day and how long we want to do it for and how long we're going to pay for it for. But the big challenge, the really big challenge, is how to do social transitioning social closure properly that still isn't bottomed out properly uh, and it's not just a mining company issue either it's a government issue as well that, that's one thing that really frustrates me uh, there's another big frustration is what do we do about abandoned mines of which there are tens of thousands around the world uh, not and uh, not all of them just a small fraction of those actually create environmental and social problems uh, but some of those are in pretty unstable political locations as well so if you we suddenly have an abandoned mine issue that kills some people in a politically unstable country, the potential conflict situations and political tensions arise. So I'm thinking of places like the Balkans, for example. So that abandoned mines are another big challenge as well. Another frustration I have, because I've been doing it for a long time now, is reading and writing um, and reviewing mine closure plans. Just about every single one I've ever read, and I'm probably never going to work again after I've said this, but just about every mine closure plan I've ever read underestimates, significantly underestimates the cost of its mine closure bond. When we have this great guidance that's available now, mining closure plans are still written by consultants like me to the old expectations from 10 years ago rather than new expectations and then working out costs based on those new expectations and requirements. Well, and future expectations, right? Presumably you're not writing a closure plan that's going to be executed next year. Your closure plan should be written according to the, the risks as you understand them at the time and then reviewed every three to five years, depending on the life of the mine, so that it's constantly updated as the risks become better quantified, the costs can become better quantified, and in relation to new legislation or new technologies that come on stream 
or new guidance as well. The mine closure bond isn't just, you know, £10 million you stick in the bank at the beginning of a mine and then just leave it for 50 years. It's got to be fit for purpose. Yeah, exactly. There's one frustration in particular that I want to ask you about, and that's this spiral of decline thing that I've been seeing a lot here in North America and presumably all over the world for communities that are experiencing mine closure. Can you describe a bit about that challenge and, and from what you've seen, you know, how it can be prevented? Okay, so the term spiral of decline is quite depressing. It's a geographer's term. If, if you're involved in the mining industry, you don't need, it's not a, a far-out theoretical issue. It's, you can see it happening in front of your eyes. So if a mine has been the central focal point economically, socially and culturally for a community for decades or generations, and then that mine suddenly closes, the effects of that closure are directly and indirectly unemployment, reduced income to the communities in terms of lost wages, lost taxes and lost philanthropy, a massive degraded environment on the doorstep of the community, and eventually loss of cultural references that might have stood there for 100 years, things like removing head frames, removing key mining buildings that people have had as a backdrop, the visual backdrop to their cultural lives all their lives. And what effects do those have? Well, it affects individuals, families and communities. Individuals become apathetic, they become, become depressed, that affects families, changing roles in families where traditionally the male used to work in the mine is unemployed, so the, the female partner has to go out and, and work and bring in income. And then what happens in these communities is the educated and the ambitious and the young leave, then you get an aging population. Um, that, uh, and it's not just the mining side of the community that the political leadership and other businesses the able the young the wealthy will move out as well so we get a lack of political leadership and all the rest of it when communities enter that phase then there's less money available for fixing a degraded environment less money available for community infrastructure etc which feeds back into the whole effects on individuals and families makes the situation where so you enter this spiral of decline where it becomes self-reinforcing uh, even though the mine might have disappeared 50 years before this is still an issue, an issue in some of the old mining towns in Cornwall, where I live, where it was a, a really, really important mining industry up until the mid-20th century, mainly copper and tin. But a lot of those communities were able to reinvent themselves because they were near the coast and they become became tourist destinations, thanks to mass travel, cheap mass travel and, and tourism. But the towns, the big, which were once engineering and mining towns in the interior of Cornwall, away from the coast, are still flatlining economically. That spiral of decline thing is a very, very difficult thing to break. The best thing is not to let it happen in the first place, obviously. Which comes back to the importance of doing closure right from the beginning, I suppose. Yeah, and one of the frustrations, you asked me about frustrations earlier on, is they still have this legacy of dysfunctional communities and all over the world. And that problem still hasn't been fixed by, I don't just want to say the mining industry, because it's moved on from a mining industry issue now. It's in some of these places. It's, it's a societal issue, and it's a, it has to be a government issue as well. It has to be led by government, this kind of thing. Depends how much they care and how much they're willing to push fixing the problem. So if we look to the future, the world has obviously changed a lot since the book, and I'm sure you're seeing all sorts of new opportunities to drive value from closed or abandoned mines. Um, I mean, I can envision a future where we use mine sites to serve other emerging industries, where we create circular industrial parks, for example, with server farms for cloud data or crypto mining for countless blockchain applications that we're going to need in the future, greenhouses and aquaculture to support local food security and the local economy. 
I'm wondering if you've seen anything like this so far. Like, I'm convinced the future has to hold this, but I'm wondering if you've seen anything like this to date. I've heard about it and I've seen things on the internet and on television, but I haven't actually, the high-end technological server farm side of it, uh, I haven't actually visited any of these places myself. But that has to be one of the solutions for people looking for deep, underground, safe, stable environmental situations that are cool, naturally air-conditioned in a lot of cases. Why wouldn't you do it in an old mine, a lot of this stuff? What might be some of the other, maybe mention some other new or future opportunities that either you've thought of or seen people talk about, even if not like the ones that I mentioned? Well, I think there's going to be an increasing need for renewable energy generation all across all across the world. And particularly nowadays, a lot of mines are in relatively rural, isolated areas. And if we can make the communities around those more sustainable in terms of generating their own energy rather than have to put in a, a, a connection to the national grid. Mine sites are better set up for installing things like solar panels and wind turbines, depending on the, the resources available, um, the natural resources available to do that, because they already have infrastructure in place. They have roadways to get there. They have flat land, potentially waste rock dumps that can give them elevation, lack of shade, all this kind of stuff. It, it, they make some ideal locations for producing at least locally generated and locally used renewable energy in places that might not have had electricity ever before. Um, some rural African situations is what I'm thinking at the back of my mind. Well, we've already seen some examples, for example, in, in West Africa, where I used to live, where we're seeing mining companies build the farms today with the attention of handing them over in the future, you know, in a time when that mine is no longer there and thereby leaving a lasting legacy, um, you know, energy is such an important, electricity is such an important part of um, development. Yeah, and associated with that, of course, you can't just hand over a solar farm or a wind farm. Totally. <laughs> local, local people will have to be trained up over a period of time to become self-sufficient in fixing them and developing supply chains for parts and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, in terms of transferable skills uh, and personal development, there's some great opportunities around that kind of thing as well. Because then maybe those people can get jobs outside of their local communities as well uh, and, you know, progress like we all want to. Yeah, totally. So a lot of mines are set for closure in the coming years all over the world. This is, this is a big issue in the industry. What do you think are some of the biggest considerations that mining companies need to be bearing in mind to really foster this necessary mindset shift from closure to transition at the end of mine life? If we want to foster the kind of progressive mine closure, mine transition, um, that we're talking about, uh, it has to get out of being just a, a mining company challenge, a mining company problem. There's part of a, a mining mindset, uh, which is very uh, frontier, you know, and it's great as well, I, I'm not denigrating it, it's this kind of frontier, can-do attitude, uh, independence, self-reliance, resourceful, you know, can create a functioning community and mindset in the middle of nowhere in next to no time using all kinds of innovative thought processes and creativity to fix problems, engineering problems or geological problems and all the rest of it. And that part of it's brilliant. But that independence of spirit and all the rest of it doesn't seem to be applied for whatever reason at the other end of the mining life. Um, so mine closure often is just a guy like me sitting in an office developing a mine closure plan, an environmental guy developing a mine closure plan with a couple of engineers and accountant commenting on it. We've got to break out of that mindset uh, and, and you know, use that frontier, independent-minded, progressive, collaborative spirit to get where we need to be, really. And that involves 
bringing in other stakeholders, bringing in other people uh, who are going to be not not in the mining company necessarily, but uh, who are going to be involved in that project long after the mine's gone. Yeah, and that could be archaeolog- uh, architects or artists or ecologists. It could be rock musicians. Who knows? It depends what the, the plan is, right? Um, well, there's plenty of mining examples of mine sites that have been turned into musical venues, rock concerts, for example, in uh, well, the Eden Project, for example. And there's a couple of other examples in the 101 Things to Do with a Hole in the Ground book. So why not ask those guys for their opinion on whether it could be a viable rock concert venue? You know, um, I don't know. But so it needs to become much more cross-disciplinary uh, and encouraging input by what I call the unusual suspects rather than the usual suspects. The other key thing as well is considering the mine as just the mine as a piece of a jigsaw in a piece of a puzzle or a jigsaw connected to all the other pieces of a jigsaw outside the mine, the wider mining, wider mining landscape, but also the wider cultural landscape and social landscape. Looking at where, where they can connect and add value with the closure project rather than focusing inwards and just the thought processes end at the boundaries of the mine. So that I think that's a really would be a really progressive approach as well. And again, the, the usual things, uh, start early, as early as possible in the mine life, review the plan regularly with a number of key cross-disciplinary experts involved, implement progressive restoration as, the, as early as possible. But also, I always say that community development is also progressive restoration for communities. If you do it early enough, they become, and it's that the development themes are focused on how to make the community more resilient when the mine closes, then you stand a much better chance of having a viable society at the end of that mine to go into the future. And what's really challenging about this mindset shift? How do we make it second nature? How do we make, how do we make it second nature for all mining leadership to take this kind of approach? I think it's, it's not just a mining problem, this, is it? It's a, a human problem. You know, how do you change the way of thinking that you've been doing for decades or, or generations one of the problems, when you actually speak to mining people on the ground, one of the things a lot of them say is, you know, we do all this really, really good work, uh, and they do, some really good environmental stories, some really good community development stories, but they never get any airplay or, or reputational benefit from it. Yeah, if that company did one wrong thing environmentally, the world would come down on them. So I think there's something around there about how we can, people like you and me, and government and investors can reward companies that are taking a progressive approach. And I'm not just talking about compliance, I'm talking about going beyond compliance, being creative and innovative in this field. How, how do you reward that? Not necessarily financially, but it could be reputationally or access to land um, going forward. Uh, I, I don't know how you do it, but I think that's, that would make a big step uh, in, in pushing practice as well. It shouldn't all be stick. We need a bit of carrot and stick as well, don't we? Absolutely, yeah. I think another really important thing is collaboration. And you've mentioned that already. If we're really honest, we're not a collaborative industry at all. But it seems like there's a huge opportunity to learn from one another's stories, globally even. What do you think it could look like if we did? What's your vision for Closure Done Well industry-wide, globally? My vision is that it just, it's easy to become an issue because it's no longer a story. People just assume a mining company is going to build, operate and close a mine according to good practice, leaving a viable proposed mining community behind and a sustainable environmental landscape, and then it's not a story. If, if the benefits that a mine 
develops during its life are accrued and then spent after the life of mine as well, rather than it just stops, then there's an ongoing benefit from that environmental and social disruption uh, during the life of the mine. And there are examples where ongoing sustainable trust funds have been set up, for example, that are there for the community after the mine's closed. And some of those can be substantial. To take it to its logical extreme, if we think about the oil, oil business and you look at the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, that's the kind of thing we could talk about on a smaller scale around, it might not just be one mine, it might be several mines or mining companies in a country or in a mining region that, that do something that will benefit communities long after that mining industry is no longer there. It's definitely a vision I think we can get behind. So Pete, rumour has it that the world might expect a new edition of your book in the next few years. Is that true? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so, but it's very, very early days and um, we are talking about it, but, uh, and the demand is there. I keep getting asked this question all the time. Uh, the old book is well over 10 years out of date. Well, not out of date, but 10 years old. There's no more copies left and there aren't any more planned to be printed. So I hope so, but I can't promise. Let's see what happens. So, Pete, when you think about the future of mine closure, what are you most excited about and what scares or worries you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, let's deal with what scares and worries me most first. So what scares me is that nothing changes or things just get worse. Um, you know, we're, we're dealing with, in many countries, a disruptive force that's passing through global politics at the moment where people become less concerned about community responsibility or environmental stewardship and government becomes less interested in those things as well. So that's what scares me the most is that we go backwards instead of forwards because ultimately if we don't look after our environment people end up getting sick and dying. That's the bottom line and who wants to be responsible for that? And what excites me, I would like to think that for example the ICMM good practice guidance that came out a couple of years ago which is really really good, I would like to think that that is being implemented widely, very widely and very well around the world. And I'd love to see in five or ten years' time, you know, if I could do a global review, see what, how the situation has changed on the back of that. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> so the show is called Prospecting Purpose, as you know. I want to ask you what purpose means to you for the mining industry, for closure, from your perspective and experience. Okay, well, that's a, a good question. So I, I guess... To, Another way of saying purpose is to determine a goal uh, and to work towards achieving that goal. Um, uh, so in terms of the mining industry in general, the main purpose of a mine is to convert geological wealth into financial wealth for investors and miners, at the same time providing raw materials for consumers. Okay, But I think we can modify that purpose a little bit. Uh, we can still reward investors and miners for taking the risk of developing a mine, the financial risk, but at the same time, internalising some of the environmental and social costs that have up until recently been externalised that the rest of society has to pay for, internalising some of those costs, improving practice so that progressive restoration and community development happen in a meaningful way throughout the life of the mine, that uh, the original purpose of a mine then is to return wealth to investors, but also uh, return a valuable society and environment to local people the line finishes. Thanks. Well, that's all for today's episode. This is Liz Friel on Prospecting Purpose. Thanks for joining us. And thank you, Pete, so much for being our guest today. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you're looking to connect with Pete or learn more about his work, you can reach him via LinkedIn or at futureterrains.org. 
Thanks for listening and see you next time. This episode is powered by Simpact, an ESG think tank and sustainability advisory firm on a mission to shape a more sustainable, socially just, and brighter future for all. Visit us at sympact.ca to learn more. What's your purpose?